Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 98, or you can look at the insert. I have both passages. This is the focus we have for Advent is taking a cue through Joy to the World, the offertory that was just played, Joy to the World, by Isaac Watts, and he developed this song using Psalm 98, a little bit of Psalm 96, and a little bit of Genesis 3 as well. Isaac Watts, uh, most of the hymns, over 600 that he wrote, most of them were developed from one of the Psalms. It's an interesting story in itself because he complained to his father at church. He lived in the uh, late 17th century, so late 1600s and then into the early 1700s. And when he was a young man, he would sit at church and they would sing mostly Psalms, not all Psalms, but mostly Psalms. He complained to his dad that it was boring and that the congregation was not singing with much um, vigor. And part of that was he knew because the, the tunes they were using were not very singable. And he complained week and week, week after week to his father about this. And his father said, why don't you just write one? And now keep in mind, um, he was 14 at this time, but he had already learned Latin by age four. He learned Greek by age nine. He had learned French and could speak it fluently by age 11. And he knew Hebrew at age 13. So his dad asked him, or told him, quit complaining, write a hymn. In the next week, young 14-year-old Isaac presented his first hymn to the pastor, Behold the Glories of the Lamb. And they sang it about a month later. This is the father of English hymnody who has uh, produced this, this hymn that we are studying, at least the verses and the biblical themes behind the verses. Uh, he's also someone that we sing uh, his hymns regularly, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. I sing the mighty power of God. Give to our God immortal praise. Come, we that love the Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove. How sweet and awesome is the place. Jesus shall reign. Let the children hear the mighty deeds. Our God, our help in ages past. And when I survey the wondrous cross. And so for this Advent series, we're taking uh, one stanza at a time and unpacking how Watts is showing Psalm 98's content there and Psalm 96 a little bit today in verse or stanza two. Uh, Each of the verses provides a biblical topic. Now, we sing this during the Advent season, but by now you know it's actually a hymn celebrating his final Advent, the one still yet to come. But because he has come, we look with great anticipation to his second coming, and it's appropriate to sing this song with both Advents, appearances, arrivals of Jesus in mind. The second stanza of the hymn, Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. Jesus is king, praise him. While fields, floods, rocks, hills, and plains, they repeat the sounding joy. Praise him, and creation will praise him too. This is an appeal for us to straightforwardly give praise unto God, to Christ our King. I will read Psalm 98 first, and then I will read three verses from Psalm 96, the verses referred to in the hymn. This is God's holy word, Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, 
with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the seas roar in all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. Now Psalm 96, verses 10 through 12. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we do wish to repeat the sounding joy. We want to join in the praise of you. Please expand our understanding of your glories and our calling to give you the worship that you deserve. Indeed, because you have designed us to be worshipers of you, we seek to glorify you and in so doing, to enjoy you. Sanctify us by your word, for your word is truth. Through Christ I pray, amen. If you've been in our church for very long, um, you have no doubt been exposed on many occasions to the very first question and answer in our catechism. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man, or woman for that matter, for humankind, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The question really captures something foundational about humankind, the way we've been created. We were, you were, created to worship God. You're his creature, and he made you to give him praise, to honor him. And you find your joy. We find our most contentment. We find the spot that gives us the most peace, a spot of worship and adoration of God. That's when we have the most, even you could say, happiness, when we're focused on our great God. You were made this way. You were designed as a creature to give honor to the Creator. How do we worship Him? How do we acknowledge Him? Well, first by our affections, our heart bent towards giving Him adoration, ascribing to Him praise, but also through our words, what we confess, what we speak, what we say, also by our action, what we do, how we live. We're most joyful when we are living for the glory of God. We are most contented when we are ascribing God the praise He deserves. So when Watts uses Psalm 98 to compel us to worship. It's not just as a duty, it's because it's what we do. It's where we get the most satisfaction when we do what we're made to do. Joy to the earth. The Savior reigns. He's the King. Joy to the earth. Praising Him. Let men their songs employ. Join in in this praise and this exaltation of the King. And by the way, all creation should join in. The fields, the floods, the rocks, the hills, the plains. Repeat that sounding joy that comes from giving Him the praise that he deserves. It's, it's true, the first coming of Jesus should make us anxious for his final coming, knowing that he has accomplished everything he said he would do. Now we look forward to that final accomplishment of his ultimate promises. So let's praise him. And that is what the psalmist says, and this is what Watts captures in Joy to the World. First of all, let's ask a couple very foundational but important questions to be aware of. What does it mean when we say to praise God? Well, praise is synonymous with worship. And the word worship comes from the old Welsh word, worthship. 
Worth meaning worth, of course. Shite meaning the quality or the condition of something. So the very word worship denotes that the object of worship is worthy of that worship. So the Bible uses several different terms, synonymous terms, to describe worshiping God, praising God, exalting God, glorifying God, adoring God, magnifying Him, extolling Him, confessing Him, blessing Him, bowing to Him, serving Him, shining, ascribing to Him glory due His name. So worship or praise of God, biblically speaking, is simply to acknowledge and express and declare the glory and worth of God. And worship is your central calling. It's my central calling. It's our central calling. So it's more dynamic than just the formal act of worship, although this is part of it. But how might we worship our God or praise God? We do so with our affections, we do so with our words, and we do so with our actions. Our affections have to do with our desire to give him the praise. It comes from something we know innately that he is great and worthy of acknowledgement concerning his greatness. We're created this way. It has to do with our words, where we put into words what we are feeling, what we are sensing, what we know in our heart to be true. We confess it, we sing it, we say it, and then our actions. What we do in formal worship acts, but also in every feature of your life given unto him as an act of worship to him, because that's what you have been placed here to do. This is where you are the most contented, doing everything for his glory. First, consider how praise to God comes from our affections. In a different psalm, Psalm 86, the psalmist writes, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. So there's something that comes from the heart, our affections, that makes us know this is where we are most satisfied. I think this time of the year, one of the reasons why people are happier, it's not because of presents and necessarily celebrations. I think one of the reasons is that you hear so much singing that praises God. I mean, even pagans can't escape it when they sing the words of Messiah. Or the Mormons even got to admit that Jesus is God. And they sing the songs. And we hear them at Target. We hear them while you're waiting for your car to get fixed. You hear them in the doctor's office. Maybe you have a playlist that you play at your house at this time of the year. And you don't other times. And it has Christmas songs in it, Advent songs. And they're constantly repeating, praising God. And every one of the choruses, in some way, there's a repeat of the sounding joy. And you are immersed with this praise of God. Even subconsciously, it's playing in the background. And it just gives you more joy because we're saying out loud or, loud or hearing and taking in that which is true. God deserves the glory and the praise. And it comes from our affections. And we're contented there. Maybe that's one of the reasons that we are so contented at this time of the year. Because we are immersed in the praise of him in our ears and in our speech, in our songs, our affections. But also we notice in Psalm 96 the smaller psalm that Watts uses, look at Psalm 96, verse 10. It has to do with our words of worship or praise. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. When we worship publicly and we speak those words, we're declaring to everyone who's listening that we don't reign, he reigns. That's public worship. That's speaking the words of praise. That's what it means to praise God, to speak those words to the nations and among the nations. We confess truth about God as a way of praising him. We profess God's greatness as a way of worshiping him and putting everyone on notice about what is true. Also, we praise God through our words in song and in music. We speak these words, but we also sing them 
in verse 1 of Psalm 98, the larger psalm that Watts writes from. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Verse 5, sing praises to the Lord with a lyre. Instrumentation used, praising him with music. With trumpets and the sound of the horn. Verse 6, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. We praise him with our songs and with our music, with our words. Adore, worship, exalt him. We also, though, praise him through our actions. This has to do with how we do what we do. Maybe the same thing, but it's done with a different perspective. Two people could be doing the same activity, but one does unto the glory of God. Knowing so, we live for him. One of the great descriptions of this as an act of worship comes from the Apostle Paul when he writes to the Colossians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We're most contented when we're doing everything for his glory, when it's not for ourselves, but it's for him. He wrote to the Corinthians, whatever, whatever, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The apostle is trying to express our design lived out in every feature of our life, not just a formalized time for worship, which is special for sure, joining our voices and our hearts together, but then throughout all your minutes of all your days, giving them unto the Lord. That's the appeal being made by the, by the psalmist. Throughout the scriptures, we see the writers do the same, and certainly Isaac Watts would have us do that as we sing, Joy to the World. So worship God with your labors. Worship God with your relationships. Worship God with your hobbies. Worship God with your recreation. Worship God with your minutes. Worship God with your talents and gifts and abilities that he's given you and worship God with the resources he's put at your disposal. Again, the apostle in Romans 12 captures all of this, this act of living as a sacrifice, as an act of worship. He says in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What does it mean to praise God? It means to be who you are to live out what you've been designed to do. That is where you will gain the most enjoyment. By glorifying God, you will enjoy him forever. That's what you're going to enjoy in eternity, is this relationship restored like unto before the fall with even better benefits, and that we'll love him and worship him and serve him. And so Christians, redeemed, you have opportunity now to see that, to gather that perspective. This is where you'll find the most enjoyment. Well, as we continue on looking at the psalm and considering the appeal made by the hymn writer, who and what should praise God? It's revealed for us in the psalm. Number one, first and foremost, the redeemed of the Lord should praise God. In verse one of Psalm 98, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Who's talking to? He's talking to the Israelites, to the covenant people of God. Sing to the Lord a new song. He's done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. It's a reminder to the people of God that God is doing this work of salvation that they are benefiting from for his glory. The Lord has made known, verse 2, his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. On display, our covenant God is making himself known. But look at verse 3. 
A subtle word, but important. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. He's remembered his covenants, his promises to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of who? Of our God. The God. Yahweh. The covenant-keeping God. So the redeemed of the Lord, first and foremost, should race to give him the praise that he deserves because he has kept his promises. Oh, come let us worship and bow down, Psalm 95. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are his people, the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hands. Let men their songs employ. The redeemed of the Lord are the first to be worshiping God. The centrality of the worship of God, it's the hallmark of the redeemed. If you think in Scripture, Abel's first recorded outward action was sacrifice before God. Noah's first act after the ark came to dry land was to offer a sacrifice to God. The worship of God by the patriarchs was prompted by their thankfulness for his provisions, and they would pause and stop, sometimes even build a small altar and worship him. The revelation or the revealing about God of the tabernacle and the temple was the centrality of focusing on God's work of salvation for them, his greatness, his otherness, the need for mediation. All of it points to the worship of God. The vision of Isaiah, the prophet, he sees the holy God is to praise him, to speak praise unto him. The connection between a humble, secure people of God is the worship of God. This is how they make their fellowship with God through his sacrifice by bowing down to him. It's interesting that in 1543, when there was the Reformation going on, trying to reform the church, um, John Calvin wrote a little booklet explaining in very simple terms what needed to happen for the church to be reformed, to return to its biblical roots and moorings. It's interesting what he says. He says, the whole substance of Christianity, those two elements are a knowledge first of the right way to worship God, and secondly, the source from which salvation is to be sought. I've always found that interesting, that in his view, he didn't put first salvation in knowing how to be right with God first. He looked upon just the way the church needed reforming and said, the worship's a mess. It's totally man-centered. It's totally about the pomp and circumstance of the clergy and the the different rituals and the rites and the traditions and, and there was man focus and there was art and there was stuff that maybe on its own right had a place, but in the place of worship, people only focused on that which was of man and not of God. That has to be reformed. We've got to get rid of that for people to see clearly. And so that is what is necessary for worship of God unfettered straight to him. And secondly, that there would be a clarity about salvation. It's an interesting order he puts on things. But as people rightly are unfettered in their view of God, they will seek access to him, and they can only find it through Christ. They go together, this right worship of God, central to the concern of any believer as the redeemed give their praise. But not only the redeemed, not only the redeemed, the creation is to give praise to God. And the creation does by its very nature, being uh, that which God has designed to demonstrate or reveal himself. If you look at the Psalms, look at the first one, Psalm 98, verse 7. Let the sea roar in all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Uh, naming different parts of creation, doing what they do as an act of worship. 
This is the creation praising God. It's what Watts refers to when he talks about compelling people, you need to sing your praises. While fields, floods, rocks, hills, and plains, they repeat the sounding joy. They do their job by nature. They're made to reveal God's glory. No thinking, rational person could look upon a component component of creation and not see the design, not see how this gives praise to God. Let the hills sing for joy together, verse 8. Let the rivers clap their hands. Just as the rivers go and you hear the water moving and you can hear that clapping sound as the rapids go, that's praise unto God. The noise it makes, the motion it takes, all of it gives praise to God, creation. Before the Lord, he comes to judge the earth, will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Creation reveals the existence of God and it naturally lifts our eyes heavenward to the, ones who, to the one who created it. In Psalm 96, verse 11 and verse 12, also mentioned in this uh, hymn by Watts, the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar in all that fills it. All of his creation sing praise to him. Let the field exalt, verse 12, and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Well, it's not only the redeemed, not only creation, but also everything that has breath should praise the Lord. And everything that has breath will ultimately praise the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth, verse 4 of Psalm 98. Break forth into joyous song. But famously, you probably remember Psalm 150, verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. In the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. It's true, at his first advent, he came to lay his life down. At his first advent, despite the rejection of the world and even his own people, he came as a servant who laid his life down as a ransom for many. Not so the next time. Not so the time that Watts is forecasting. He comes as a king who will claim creation for himself, all of creation, and everything that has breath will praise him. The first time he came in humility, the second time he will come again in glory. What and who should praise God? Everything that has breath. What do we praise God concerning? Well, we praise him for who he is and what he's done, and we praise him for what he will do. We find this in verse 6, or actually in, yes, in verse 6, we see that he's the king. So he's worthy of praise just for who he is. Verse 6 says, the trumpets and the sound of the, with the trumpets and the sounds of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. He's the ruler deserving of our adoration. He deserves our fealty. He's the sovereign who merits our devotion and praise. Everything we have, everything given to us is really his. We ascribe him glory for who he is. He's infinite. He's eternal. He's unchangeable in his being, in his wisdom, in his power, in his holiness, in his justice, in his goodness, in his truth, and he deserves all of the praise because of who he is. Great is the Lord, Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. When you get to where you think you're done praising him, there's still more you can praise him for. It's unsearchable. You can't, you can't satisfy all the amount of praise that can be given unto him, the eternal one. Joy to the earth. The Savior reigns, Watts writes, to capture all of this. Well, that's who he is, but what has he done? Well, the first verse of Psalm 98, 
He works salvation. Look what it says. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. He's done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Keep in mind, this was written by David 1000 BC. So it's celebrating salvation that God had already revealed and shown, which was, was manifold, many ways in which he redeemed the people of God and he provided the way of redemption through trust in him and his provision of the second Adam to come, his promises. But since that time, a thousand years after to the time of Christ, and now 2,000 years after the time of Jesus, he's continued to make his salvation known, person by person. Praise him for his working of salvation. But also look at verse 2. Praise him for revealing himself, for choosing to let us know how we might know him, how we might be right with him. He has revealed himself in this way. Verse 2, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. At the time of this writing, it was through Israel. People could look and see God's supernatural hand upon Israel, redeeming them over and over again against nations that they should never have been able to beat, out of places they should have never gotten out of. Yet he did this salvation for them. So the nations could see Yahweh acting on behalf of of his people. And their gods were not working on their behalf like that. Could have left the world blind and wandering, but revealed himself over and over again through the prophets and through Israel and such. He intervened many times in the history of redemption, but he made himself most vividly known. As Hebrews 1 says, long ago and in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. What did he speak to them concerning? About his salvation. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Praise him for revealing himself, for not leaving us to wander aimlessly and wondering and and fumbling about, not knowing the answer to these things. But he gives us Christ. What else do we praise him for? Verse 3, we praise him for his being a covenant-keeping God. The reason why we can be anxious for the next coming of Jesus is we have seen him keep his promises with regard to the first coming. In verse 3 of chapter 98, of Psalm, uh, Psalm 98, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. The promises he gave to his people he kept. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. They've witnessed all the special, uh, the special hand of God upon Israel. God promised to send a seed to crush the head of the serpent. He promised to preserve that seed, and Israel was the incubator for that seed. His protection of Israel was to bring Messiah, to bring the second Adam. So he promises to the people of Israel in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, I will make of you a great nation, Abraham. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And through you... All the nations will be blessed. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Psalm 98, verse 3. We know that his promises in the future are true because he's kept every one of them in the past. Praise God for what he, who he is and what he has done. But let's also praise God, finally, look at verse 9, for what he will do. Verse 9 says, Before the Lord... Before he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. Anything but equity is realized in this world. Now, mostly that's good for us. We concentrate on all the inequity and injustice. We don't really think much about what justice would really mean for us personally. But there's a certainty no matter what is happening now. 
there is a certainty that God will make all things right. Just as he certainly came, he will come again and make all things right. And you can find comfort in that. You can find perseverance in that in the midst of inequity and injustice, unfairness. The ultimate truth means a final judgment will come through Christ. And if you're in Christ, hidden in Christ, it will be another feature of the worship that you will lay before him when he comes again. We praise him for what he will do when he visits again. Psalm 96 verse 10 says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. It, he will judge the people with equity. As sure as creation is, as sure as his kept promises are, he will come again and he will judge with equity. Joy to the earth. The Savior reigns. He reigns now and he will in finality when he comes. Let men their songs employ. And oh, also, the fields, the floods, the hills, the rocks, the plains, repeat the sounding joy of the king that we praise. Brothers and sisters, human beings are made to worship God. The discontentment felt by people is because they're trying to worship something, but it's not God. They're made to be worshipers. Every human being is. We're made to worship God with our affections. We're made to worship God with our words. And we're made to worship God with our lives and our actions. Sin entered mankind because mankind sought glory for himself. Think of Adam now in the, in the fall. Going against his design as a worshiper, he seeks to take some of God's glory. He buys the lie that he can have some of Godhood and that he should deserve to take some of that worship. He wasn't designed to take that worship. We don't take worship well. It's ugly when we seek worship for ourselves. We can't handle worship. Post-fall, humankind scrambles about trying to find worship, something to worship, worshiping ourselves, our appetites, our stuff, other people, whatever it may be. But it always leaves us wanting. It always leaves us unfulfilled. Worshiping people is totally searchable. It's unsearchable God, who God is, but it's searchable. It reaches an end. There's a flaw always with us or whoever else it is or the thing that decays. We are made to be worshipers. We want to worship something. And when we don't have something, we end up in despair and depression and discouragement. Dostoevsky said very well and helpfully, the one essential condition of human existence is that man should always be able to bow down before something infinitely great. If men are deprived of the infinitely great, they will not go on living and will die of despair. The infinite and the eternal are as essential for man as this little planet on which we live. He captures it perfectly. If we can't find something to worship, and we never can, that, that really satisfies, we end up in despair. But the redeemed, you, brothers and sisters in Christ, you have experienced a restoration of purpose. In our most sanctified moments, we know that worshiping God is right. We know it and we want to do it. We know that to glorify God is to enjoy him. The redemption that Jesus has provided us releases us to worship him. We are let out and loose to be able to worship him. The redemption of Christ restores our sense about worship to worship him. We know it to be right. My favorite ways to describe this, especially this time of year, it comes to my mind all the time. I think of my young sons when they were, when they were really young. We, at one point, we had, uh, we had three boys under the age of four. 
I'm just saying to you that the amount of energy that they possessed and could unleash is just hard for me to describe. I'll watch some of you young families and I just get tired watching. Nonstop movement they had. Never-ending squirming. I, it wasn't until I had a daughter that I realized that a child could sit on your lap and not move constantly and perpetually. Uh, perpetual motion, jumping, running, crashing, wrecking, throwing, on and on and on. Like a nuclear reaction where nuclei uncontrollably crash against each other and produce an explosion that can level whole cities, so also was the dynamic of the boys when they were young. Like a swarm of ravenous locusts descending upon a crop field and stripping the field bare in seconds so the boys could come into a living room, maybe your living room, and rain devastation upon the furnishings, the decorations, the electronics, virtually anything not nailed down and even some of that. I distinctly remember going to Sherry's parents for Christmas when the boys were about around six, four, and two, or seven, five, and three. I don't remember, but it was at that age where you were just worried all the time, and we were the only ones with little kids at that time, and we had a lot of people crammed into the family room to celebrate Christmas. We get there a couple days before actual Christmas Day, and for several days, the boys had to walk by piles of presents under the trees that they just wanted to open. And they'd see them, and they'd talk about them, and they'd touch them, and they'd feel them, and it was just through two days of trying to keep them at bay. Then the time would come, finally, to open the presents. We'd all get in the living room. But Sherry's mom would want to sing every hymn in the hymnal. And then when it was done, so what I would do is, this is totally true. I'd get the three boys, I would sit in a chair, on the edge of the chair, and I would put my arms around them, and they'd, all three of them be right in my arms. And I, I was wrestling like, like a war horse trying to get out into battle, and I was holding them through every hymn that ever has been penned in Christendom. And then after, when that was done, now it's time to, tell po to read poems. So we're going to read poems now, too, as well. Then after that, we're going to go around and share with everyone what God had taught them that year. Finally, a prayer would be uttered, and I would release them. And they would go to the presence, finally being able to open them. They've been wanting to for so long. They've looked forward to they finally could. Before we come to Christ, we're pent up. We're bridled. We, we, can't, we don't know what we're supposed to do. We're restless. Unable to express our inward desire to worship. But when we are redeemed, we are let go. And now we are let Go to do what we want to do, which is say praise to God. Sing praise to God. Give him all the glory. So all the nations here, that's what we want to do. That's what you're made to do. That's when you're contented. It's interesting that the wording of the Psalms go like this. Let the seas roar. Let them do what they're supposed to do. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the heavens be glad. Let the field exalt. In Psalm 150, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Let it do what it's been made to do. Psalm 67. Let the peoples praise you. Let them go. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, let us give you the praise you deserve, for you are the sovereign of the universe. Jesus, let us worship you. Let us worship you for the Lord and Savior that you are to us. 
Holy Spirit, let us adore you for the work that you do in our hearts so that we might worship God in spirit and in truth. I pray this through Christ. Amen.